Your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19, as we continue studying the book of Acts and on through the New Testament. Chapter 19 is about Paul's ministry in Ephesus, the ministry in Ephesus. After describing Apollos' meeting with Priscilla and Aquila and his ministry in chapter 18, Luke now in 19 returns to the story of Paul. And he tells us that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul on his third missionary journey, passing through the upper country, came to Ephesus. And Paul kept his promise about returning to Ephesus. He made that promise in chapter 18, verse 21. And Upon returning, when he did, he was hoping that the Jews would still be excited to hear what he had to say about Jesus Christ. And when he got to Ephesus, he found some disciples. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 now, chapter 19. And it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, when we started the book of of Acts, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they received the Holy Spirit from the Father. He said, John baptized you with a baptism of repentance, but in a few days you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now this is after Jesus had breathed on them in John chapter 20, verse 22, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. They couldn't receive the gift of the Holy Spirit until he ascended into heaven. Now when Paul asked the Ephesians if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed, he's acknowledging that there is a relationship with the Holy Spirit. So again, it's important that we understand that. Paul's implying that you can believe and not receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you receive Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. But Paul is speaking about a second uh, part here, a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, You can receive Jesus as your Lord, but be filled with the Holy Spirit at a later time. I shouldn't say a a second relationship, but a second experience. So why did ask him this question? And it's important for us, again, when when questions are asked, to kind of think about them and, and you know, try to, try to, try to see what, what maybe was going on. Well, Paul may have asked this question, have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Because they had the Holy Spirit, but the gift was something different. It was a different experience. Maybe he asked this question because he saw, maybe he saw a lack of fervency in the Christians. Maybe he saw a lack of love. A lack of passion, enthusiasm. There's no fire in their life. And you know, there are a lot of Christians today who lack the real dynamic, the power, 
of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They're just sort of, you know, casual Christians coasting along. There's no real fire in their life. There's no real energy in their life. There's no service in their life. Paul said in Romans 12, 11, not to be lagging in diligence, but be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Fervent means fire hot. It means being really on fire, serving the Lord. In the New Living Translation, it sounds like this. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. It's a question we must all ask ourselves. Do I serve the Lord enthusiastically? Am I on fire for God? Am I living for Him? You know, many think, well, I'm a Christian and I believe. I believe in Jesus. But that's as far as it goes. It doesn't go much further than that. There's no real enthusiasm for the things of God. And it's possible that Paul saw that there was a sort of spiritual deadness. In Revelation, you know, we are going to be praising God. Listen to Revelation 5.13. It says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in, in them, I heard saying, this is what John says, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb who, forever and ever. There was a joy to praise. There was an enthusiasm. And, there's a, and that's the, why we need the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Paul asked him, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because again, the Holy Spirit is a dynamic power. It is something that makes us alive to the, to the things of the Spirit. You know, and it gives us power. It gives us boldness. It gives us courage. It gives us stamina. It gives us what we need to serve the Lord God because we can't do the things that God asks us to do on our own strength, power, and wisdom. The gift of the Holy Spirit that Paul is talking about, it starts a fire in us. It gives us a life of enthusiasm. It, it, it enables you to get over temptations and victories that maybe you haven't been able to. But the people said to Paul, you know what? We haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what keeps us going through everything, through all situations. Paul says, then, then when were you baptized? Did they baptize you in the name of the Father? In the name of the Son and the Holy Spirit? See, Paul's question would suggest that it was a, the common practice to obey the commandment of Jesus in baptizing people in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So he says, how were you baptized? Look at verses 5 and 7 goes on to say, when they heard this, that is Paul's questioning, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. So Paul lays hands on them and they spoke in tongues. Some of them also prophesied. Now this is important to know too, that this was 26 years after Pentecost. There are those who say that, you know, that when the apostles died off, there was no need for the gifts, there was no need for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, 26, later, 26 years later, here we see them baptized in the Holy Spirit, receiving the gift. And, it's, and again, it's a very important to understand that what the Scriptures say. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. 
And he went, that is Paul, Paul went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Again, notice he spoke how boldly he spoke reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, the way being another name for Christianity, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he, Paul, departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, and so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, the first thing you have to do for the power of God's word to be effective is preach it. Preach it. And that's what Paul did. Paul went to the synagogue, which the scripture says uh, a few times that, that, you know, uh, that was his custom. Paul would go into town, he'd go into the synagogue, and he'd preach, this, preach the word of God. And it says there he spoke boldly for three months. And he, re, he, and he reasoned with them. The word reasoning means dialogue. It means he asked them questions, they asked him questions, and he'd answer their questions. And it says he was persuading. He spoke to them persuading. That means to convince by argument. So he spoke boldly, he reasoned, he persuaded them about the kingdom of God. What Paul taught was uncompromising and it was aggressive. And he didn't hold back anything out of fear. He wasn't afraid of being rejected. He wasn't afraid of the hostility he might receive for preaching the gospel. And and, and again, a good example to follow when we share the gospel with somebody. During those three months... Paul reasoned and he persuaded the Jews about the kingdom of God. Paul didn't just lecture the people. He answered their questions and their challenges. And that's why it's important to know the word of God so we can do the same thing. Paul was surrounded by a whole congregation of unbelieving Jews here. And yet he uncompromisingly and straightforwardly challenged their whole religious system calling them to repent and to believe in Jesus the Christ as their Messiah and God. And even though Paul was able to minister in the synagogue for a long time, the expected finally happened. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. Some of the Jews that were there became hardened and disobedient, and they began to speak evil of the way or speak speak evil of Christianity in front of the other people. During Paul's three months of ministry in in the Ephesian synagogue, It says that some hearts gradually hardened against the gospel. And that's what happens. When you reject the truth over and over and over, it hardens the heart and the message of salvation becomes hardened. It becomes deadened. In other words, when somebody sits in the church and they start coming to church and they're listening to the gospel message and they have the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ, And maybe they go, well, not today. They come back another week and they hear the gospel message and they have another opportunity to receive Jesus Christ and they say no for whatever reason. Each time they come and each time they say no, their heart begins to harden. And then it becomes to a point where it becomes dead. And they no longer care about the gospel message. And they don't care about coming to church anymore. It was an experience. It's done. I heard it. I, I, I'm, I'm no longer interested. And that's what had happened to these folks here. 
You know, the ref- refusing to repent and to re- believe the gospel, that's called disobedience. And that's what it was called here. Why? Because belief is a divine command. And when God gives a command and we disobey, that's disobedience. We read in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. It says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now, it says, He commands, God commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to Him. And when we reject that command, it's disobedience. Now, their disobedience, their inward hardened heart, their disobedience to the gospel message is starting to show outwardly. They're, dis- being, they're, they're, they're rejecting it and they're being disobedient by refusing to repent and believe and to, st- to speak evil about Christianity. Paul's challengers started a hostile public battle of slander against Paul in front of all the people that were there trying to destroy Paul's influence with them. See, Paul realized there was nothing more to gain by staying any longer in the synagogue, so he left. And he took those who believed with him and started reasoning and daily in the school of Tyrannus. Paul did this for two years, and as a result, all who lived in Asia heard the word of God. Jews and Greeks, without ever leaving Ephesus, as far as we know, Paul, Paul through his converts, evangelized the whole province of Asia. Paul's strategy for evangelism was teach the word, teach the people the word, make disciples, and then let them go out and spread the gospel. And it was very effective. Spiritually reproducing Christians is the heart of any successful method of evangelism. And that's why you come to church. You get taught, now you go out and you teach others. Can you imagine if everybody, look at what, look what 12 disciples did in Jesus' day. We're a result of 12 people. Not just us, but all believers everywhere. They turned the world upside right for Jesus Christ. And if we would follow their example, man, the world would, the world would be a better place. But again, we've got to take the word out. So again, that was his strategy. Teach, have disciples, and then they go out and do the same thing. Satan's kingdom was dealt an effective blow by preaching the gospel. Satan, that's why Satan hates the Bible. He hates the Word of God. He hates when you read it. He hates when you spend time in it. And that's why he tries to divert you from that devotional time with God. That's why he doesn't want you to read the Bible. That's your only weapon. He can't, he can't defeat the Word of God. He can, only defeat, he can only defeat you and to keep you out of the Word of God and then defeat you. Verses 11 and 12. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. So, again, notice how it starts off in verse, um, verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles. Who did the miracles? God, not Paul. God used Paul's hands. We are all instruments in God's hands. God uses human instruments to do his work. Miracles played an important part 
in the early church in Paul's ministry. It played an important part. It was, um, again, so, so why, if it was such an important part of the church in Paul's day, why don't we see miracles more today? Well, here's the popular thought why we don't see them today. The popular idea is that God used miracles as a way of helping the early church to get established in a skeptical world. Now, once the church was established, now they could go and do their own thing. That is, they could go on building it without God. Now they themselves could persuade men to come to Jesus Christ by intellectual influence. Man in his own wisdom now could bring people to Christ. So if miracles were to just convince a skeptical world during Christ's time about the reality of Christ... Don't you think we still need miracles today? Because our world is, is, is even more skeptical, skeptical about Jesus Christ today than ever. Instead of believing and saying God doesn't do miracles anymore, we need to look at ourselves. Not God. We need to look at ourselves for the reason we don't have the same power that they did here in the book of Acts in the early church. You see, if you, when you read the book of Acts, it's the only book that doesn't end with amen. Meaning it's, that book is closed. It was to be ongoing. The power of the church was to be ongoing. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The, wor- the word miracles here, it, 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 or, I'm sorry, the word power And also, miracles is dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite. It means mighty power. And Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, wait there in Jerusalem until you receive the power, the gift of the Spirit, the dunamis from on high, so that you can be my witnesses. You see, we can't do what we've been called to do in our own strength and our own power. We need the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember when Peter denied Jesus three times? I mean, he just, he just shriveled up and just said, I don't know him. He was fearful. What happened in the book of Acts chapter 2 or 3? He stood up boldly and preached the gospel and 3,000 people got saved. Why? He had the gift of the Holy Spirit now. That's, that's what happened. He didn't have the gift of the Spirit when he, was, when he had denied the Lord. But man, when he got baptized in the Spirit, when he had the gift of the Spirit, he spoke boldly. He no longer feared. And many came to Christ. That's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that miracles would stop when the apostles died off. The gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And there's many of them. They are for today. And like I said, the Bible doesn't say anywhere that they would stop after the apostles were gone. Listen to what Paul said in Romans eleven twenty nine: 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God doesn't take them back. We need them. Acts chapter 2, 39. It says, for the promise is to you. Speaking of the promise of the Father, the gift, the power of the Holy Spirit, and back in Acts... 
It says, the, the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off. Notice, and as many as the Lord our God will call. Do you think God has finished calling people to the gospel, to, to salvation yet? No. The scripture says that the promise of the Father is for those that God are still going to call. The gifts are for today. We need them today, for today. Paul said they're to edify the church. In the past, the problem has always been with man and God finding a man that he could use to accomplish his purposes and his work. God is looking for men and women today, but has trouble finding any that will do his will and his purpose. Now it says that, 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 that even handkerchiefs or aprons brought from his body, in verse 12, were used to, for, to, to heal the sick. Now these handkerchiefs and these aprons, and this is where you see uh, on a lot of these religious shows, you see them, hey, you know, we'll send you this magic bottle of water, we'll send you this handkerchief, won't you? and if you'll just... These handkerchiefs and aprons were actually sweat cloths. Paul used them as he worked. While Paul was working, he would be sweating and he'd use these aprons or, or, or these uh, handkerchiefs and he'd wipe his sweat with them and they were dirty with his sweat. Then people would come and pick them up and they'd be healed of their diseases. Now, in that area where Paul was, there, was, there were mystery religions that would use white garments. And they would emphasize that everything, those white garments, everything must be very clean and, and very white. Everything had to be just perfect. And I love that God used sweaty, nasty handkerchiefs and aprons. You see, men will try to do things their way. And when God used these, Paul was able to use these, or, or people were able to use these handkerchiefs and these aprons that were dirty and sweaty, it seems like God was rebuking all of that stuff that, that men were trying to do. They had to be white, they just had to be perfect. And, and, you know, God, you can't put God in a box. And that's what you see several times in the Gospels, the, the, the strange ways that he healed people, putting mud in people's eyes and spitting on his hands and, you know, and, and putting mud in their eyes and, and doing all of these, these things that we go, why? God says, you can't put me in a box. I do the work. You can't copy me. Don't try to copy me. God is God, and we need to let him do, be God and, and do things the way he wants to do them. So again, it seems like God was rebuking all of this stuff that man was doing. God used... Dirty, sweaty cloths to heal people. Again, this shows the special power that Paul was given by God. God did the healing, but he used Paul as his instrument. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. This shows us about relationship those who know christ and those who just know him by name we live in a skeptical 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 time when it comes to the devil and demons a lot of people make jokes about the devil make jokes about the demons think they're funny think they're a cartoon character when some of the traveling jewish exorcists saw the power of the name of jesus that was used to heal they thought wow 
I'd like to use, I like to do that. So they took it upon themselves. I'm going to use the name of Jesus in my, in, in, in my, in my, you know, in my ministry or my magic, you should say, in our sorcery. And so that was part of their repertoire. And what these guys would do is use words from any religion that, that seemed to, to work. So in their eyes, this, this spell that, that Paul was casting on those that, you know, could be healed. Paul's spell, in other words, uh, to these guys, in this, this spell in Jesus' name, it seemed to work for Paul. So they figured, you know what? Hey, I'm going to give it a shot. But you see, they didn't know the Savior Jesus that Paul preached about. These itinerant ex- exorcists, they only knew Jesus by fact. They'd heard about him. They heard about the things that he had done. But by taking the name that's above all names, as much as it annoyed the rabbis, because they didn't want to hear about the name of Jesus, Jewish exorcists tried to build up their reputation by using his wonderful name. When in reality, they were actually using his name in vain because they didn't know him. They were trying to use it for his benefit. Messing with evil spirits apart from a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ can be a dangerous thing and as these Jews were about to find out. Look at verse 14. Also, there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Siva was probably a member of the local Ephesian uh, Jewish Sanhedrin. He had seven sons. And these seven sons here also claimed, they claimed to know the name of Jesus, but they didn't know him as their Lord and their Savior. Verse 15, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? These wannabe exorcists, they might have fooled the Ephesians, but they couldn't fool the demon. The demon knew that they didn't have any power over their captive, but they knew Jesus, and they trembled at his name. All the time that Jesus was on earth, he fought a, a ferocious battle with Satan, but he had, he had victory every time during his life on earth. Over and over and over again, Jesus defeated Satan, who was the master of demons. Demons could not stand up against Jesus, whether alone or whether it was in thousands. They knew him as the Holy One of God. They knew him as God manifest in the flesh. Demons knew Jesus. They knew about his virgin birth. They knew about his perfect sinless life. They knew about his glorious person. They knew about his omnipotent power. They knew about his atoning death. They knew about his triumphant resurrection. They knew about his glorious ascension. They knew about his high priestly seat at the right hand of the Father. And they knew that he was definitely coming again. They knew Jesus. And when the demon said, Jesus I know... The demon meant, I know him by experience or by knowledge I learned of him. And the vast experience that demons had learned about the human race was no use to them when they faced Jesus. He was, he was man as God always intended man to be, but because of sin, we ruined that. Jesus was man in the full image and likeness of God. He was holy, he was harmless, and he was separate from sinners. Jesus never gave in to temptation because he was clothed in a, in like in a, in a, a 
impenetrable robe of righteousness, an armor of personal holiness. No man like this had ever crossed their path ever before. So their experience of, uh, the, demons, the demons' experience of obsessing and harassing and influencing and possessing and distressing men was of no use when they were in contact with Jesus. They had no power. They learned by experience they were no match for Jesus. And they knew Paul as well. They'd known Paul for some time. When the, when the demon said, and Paul I know. That meant that, that, that the demon knew him by reason of closeness or as a result of continued attention. In other words, this demon had been hanging around Paul, watching Paul, studying Paul. And this demon wasn't going to mess with Paul. And this demon was almost as afraid of Paul as he was Paul's master, Jesus Christ. Verse 16. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out that fled out of that house naked and wounded the exorcists they had no right to use the name of Jesus and you know what if if, a, if you're not a believer if a person is not born they don't either just like in in Matthew chapter 21 verses um, chapter 7 verses 21 through 23 when they said we did this in your name lord we did that in your name. We cast out demons. We healed the sick. We did all this. And Jesus, I never knew you. When he said, I never knew you, that means in terms of a personal relationship. Jesus knows everybody. But when those people said, I, we did this in your name, that was it, name only. You didn't have a relationship with me. So that's why the exorcist had no right to use this name. The name of Jesus, hey, it's not a magic charm. It's not a magic word to be used whenever you're in trouble by whoever wants to use it. Like, you know, when, you know those days when you used to get in trouble, oh, Lord, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, you know, we'd say it all kinds of you know, different ways and kinds of times. And so thinking that, okay, if he'll help me. It's not a magic charm. Nor a magic word. And we can't use it whenever we want to. Nor did these people, have, the demon had the power to, to command, I'm sorry, nor did these uh, uh, exorcists, these itinerant Jewish preachers, neither did they have the power to command the demons to come out. And so the demon viciously attacked them with the supernatural strength that sometimes demons have on those who are possessed. He said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? I think at that time, if I was one of those guys, I'd start to be worried because I would, have, I would have loved to hear the tone of voice when he said, and who are you? Because they were about to pounce on these guys. The demon challenged their authority over him. Verses 17 through 20. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus, notice, was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of them all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily, and it prevailed. This event... 
that resulted here put a fear and an awe into both Jews and Gentiles. And it gave high esteem for Jesus and his name. Many Christians had also been involved in sorcery and spiritism. And they publicly confessed their evil deeds. As it says here in 17 through 20. The word deeds probably is describing the magical spells and the formulas that these Christians had, had used themselves. You know, giving out these secrets, though, would cause them to lose their power. Not only that, many of these people publicly burned their sorcery books, their magic books. And by sorcery, people, with the help of demons, tried to gain over others. Now, it said that was at the value of 50,000 pieces of silver, which, again, it was a lot of money, but we don't know what the actual price was or what that uh, 50,000 pieces of silver actually is. But notice the cleansed church became a powerful and growing church. And it says the word of God spread as well. You see, God cannot work through a dirty vessel. He cannot work through a dirty individual or a dirty church. Sin in the church, God can't go to work. Remember what happened when Ananias and Sapphira were in the church? Prior to them being taken away. Prior to them to being slain, the church wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't doing what it should have been doing or could have done. But we see what happens after they were gone. Listen to Acts chapter 5, verses 11 through 16. This is after the sin of Ananias and Cyrus was found out and the Lord, the Lord took them out. This is what it says afterwards. After that happened, it says, Great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, notice, many signs and wonders, that is miracles, were done among the people. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that, the, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also notice a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Praise God. Notice that. When sin is removed, God will go to work. People were healed, all manner of sickness and disease. Even if, even if Peter's shadow passed over people, they would be healed. But the sin had to be removed from the church. Satan tried to hinder Paul's work through these exorcists. But they actually helped Paul do his work. Earlier in a couple of chapters in Acts, remember, there, were, there was Simon the magician and there was another exorcist that were trying to do the same thing. Now here we have the other one. These, these exorcists come along trying to get back to hinder Paul's work in the same way. But again, it just helped them because when, when, when Paul saw, or when they saw Paul cast out the demons, uh, it, 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 a lot of the people came to the knowledge of Christ. This is the, the, you know, it, so Satan came back again here to hinder the work of the gospel, but again, they, they, were, they were defeated. Now, this time, Satan starts a riot, creating chaos in Ephesus, which eventually forced Paul to leave Ephesus. The opposition to Paul's ministry in Ephesus was very strong and very violent. To the point where Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he said that he fought with beasts at Ephesus. Can you imagine? He fought with beasts at Ephesus. 
Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 69, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there were many adversaries. You see, the greater the success of the Lord, the greater we can expect Satan to come against it. Verse 21 and 22. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must see Rome. Verse 22. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So he says, when these things were accomplished, that is, those experiences that were recorded here, when those things happened, it was Paul's intention to go to Rome on this missionary trip. But he didn't get there the way he planned, he planned to go. This is the time that he wrote to the Corinthians. And apparently Timothy and Erastus were the ones who took the letter to deliver it to the Corinthians. Verse 23 through 41 now. 23 through 41. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way, or Christianity. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar uh, occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus but, Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and they cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with the confusion and rushed into the, into the, um, uh, rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, a Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the temple, the disciples would not allow it, not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do, not, and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There be no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when, we, when, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Before Paul left, 
And as a reason for him to leave Ephesus, it breaks out there in a, in a riot. The opposition, though, had to do with money. There were two goddesses in Asia Minor named Artemis. One was a goddess worshipped in Greek culture, whose counterpart in Rome was Diana. The other was Artemis of the Ephesians. It was, she, she was a many-breasted goddess of fertility. Silver craftsmen made statues, that is, silver shrines of these Ephesian goddesses. But because of the power of the word of God, their business crashed. So, you see, this is what it was all about, the money. Demetrius, verse 24 says, a silversmith. He went out and he got other craftsmen together and he said, look, guys, our livelihood is at stake here. And we're going to lose this money and we're going to lose our good name and we're going to lose the reputation of our religion. Uh, It's going to be ruined. And the reason Demetrius gave them here was a lie. He wasn't concerned about the reputation uh, and the, uh, of the religion or, or, the, or the goddesses. Artemis, Art, Art, uh, Demetrius was only concerned about one thing, money. Artemis was worshipped in many of the cities besides Ephesus. Paul told the people, look, man-made idols, they are not gods. And Demetrius said, if people really believe this, he says, it's going to ruin our thriving, our thriving idol-making business. So the silversmiths, man, they were upset. They were furious with Paul because of what Demetrius said. And it started a riot, and they rushed into the Ephesian theater. It was the only place big enough to hold a group of people of at least 25,000 people. And as tokens of opposition, they grabbed a man named Gaius and Aristarchus. And it seems they uh, was fortunate they got away uninjured, which usually they the other way around. Verses 30 through 31 are important because of what they directly say and for what they suggest. Paul was eager to defend the gospel, ready to take on his opponents, but the Christians didn't let him. Some of the officials wouldn't let him get caught up in the riot. They were in charge of the community's political and religious welfare. They would be on good terms with Rome, so they'd support Christianity's good standing with the government. So, oddly enough, most of the people didn't even know why they were there, which is a lot of times the case when you get a riot going on. They just, hey, let's join in. Because of the Jews, because the Jews were monotheists, that is, they only worshipped one God, they were totally against idols, they shoved Alexander to the front in order to explain why they were there, to keep them from being accused of starting the riot, that they weren't part of. The reduction or the decrease in making the idols wasn't their fault. But hatred for the Jews is what took over. And the mob refused to listen to the Jews. And they chanted for about two hours. And you know, many times when you see a protest and they don't want to hear a speaker, what they, they just yell. They constantly yell to, over, to, to, to you know, drown you out. Well, that's what they did here. They didn't want to hear the Jew. They chanted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Then when the city clerk showed up, then the people listened. He told them, look, you guys are are making too much out of this. You're making way too much out of this whole thing. He said, look at this great temple and the great Diana. Nothing could happen to them. You know, you're taking this too seriously. He said, "Nothing, nothing could happen. Nothing could happen to them. Nothing could be said against them. But... They've both been laying into ruin for over 2,000 years. That's man's idea. No, nothing can happen to him. And God says, oh. So for 2,000 years, they've been laying in ruins. 
He's saying, the city clerk is saying that if the silversmiths want to make a legal charge, the court's open. He told them, if you have an issue to bring up, you should all sit down, have an orderly meeting together. They were to put down their signs. They were to quit shouting. They were to quit running around as a mob because they were actually in danger of being accused of rioting. So he's, the city clerk dismisses the crowd. He says, hey, break up, you guys. He says, you're in danger of, of, of causing a riot or being accused of rioting. So when he let them know that, what they were actually doing, the crowd broke up and everybody went home. In closing... The church ministers by persuasion, not advertising. We share God's truth, not man's religious lies. And why do we do it? Our motive is love, not anger. And it's for the glory of God and not the praise of men. And this is why the church goes on and why we have to keep it that way. Paul's ministry in Ephesus is over now. He leaves Ephesus and he goes back to Macedonia. But can we learn the lessons from, again, the ministry here that Paul had in Ephesus? Again, it's preaching boldly. It's preaching, it's reasoning, and it's persuading once again. And, And again, dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We need, again, we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. We need to understand that he's a person. He has feelings. He can speak. He can hear. He can talk to us. We can grieve him. He is a person. And so we need him in our life. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. That wonderful name. That powerful name. That tender name. Father, we, we, we're here because of him. And Father, we depend so much Or, Father, we should depend so much upon the Holy Spirit in our lives. He gives us victory. Father, we need passion. We need compassion. Father, we need boldness. We need to be uncompromising, God. We need to be courageous. We need to get victory over temptations, Lord. And the Holy Spirit is the one who does that. As we saw Peter at one point in his life deny Christ. To say he didn't even know him. And then a little while later, he's standing up preaching boldly to thousands of people. And because of the Holy Spirit, the power that he had, the power of the Holy Spirit, he preached the word of God convincingly and thousands were saved. It shouldn't be any different today. We all need the gift of the Holy Spirit. We need, all need, need Him to preach the gospel, to get victory over to our temptations, and also to uh, have Him teach us more and more about the, the, the depths and the riches of the Word of God. So Lord, we thank You. Father, may, again, may, they, may, may we just pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Father, to, to receive that power to receive that gift that we all may be fervent and and diligent, fired up in our relationship with God. Lord, we thank you for the offering that we're about to receive. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your generosity. You're always so good to us, God. Be with each one this morning as they go their separate ways, God. And 
Um, we look to gather again tonight, God, and meet with you and again study your word. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen.